just touch the meat, all right? Or take a Ziploc bag, put your hand in it, handle your meat, and then throw the Ziploc bag away. Doug's secret place. This radioactivity is coming from Brian Suits on KFI. I would bomb the shit out of him. Dark Secret Place with Brian Suits on KFI. KFI AM, 640 more stimulating talk. It is Dark Secret Place. Brian Suits in here until midnight. And uh, we will get to the nuclear points dropping like uh, like a mic drop or a new album drop out of uh, North Korea in next hour. Uh, this week, 38 years ago, 1980. The abortive American rescue attempt, uh, that the hostage rescue attempt in Iran came to a flaming failure at a place called Desert One. So uh, what was supposed to happen, what did happen, and why did it go wrong? That will be uh, next hour. If you've never heard some of the details, it'll give you next hour. If you have one idea of what was supposed to happen, and most people don't have any idea what the mission was, but I'll tell you what the mission was supposed to look like. Uh, if it had worked, and uh, what it did lo- look like, besides what we know, and uh, why it went wrong. So, uh, today was a memorial at Bravery Brewing in Lancaster for Arlie Ermy, the gunny. Gunnery Sergeant Arlie Ermy, uh, of course, made iconic in Full Metal Jacket as uh, the drill instructor, Gunnery Sergeant Hartman. Uh, and then uh, numerous other roles, and I, I played for you uh, what last week or week week before his his the hilarious little scene in in the movie Seven where he was the captain of detectives. But Arlie Ermey was a part owner of uh, Bravery Brewing, which is this this uh, great little brewery there in Lancaster. If you know where the Costco is in Lancaster, you just keep keep driving, uh, go go uh, Overseer Highway. And uh, look for the sign. And a great place. Really, really great place. Uh, kind of out of the way. Brewery in one big building. And then the tasting room, which is a code word for bar uh, in the other. And a really, really great time. I was met by uh, Gary and Shannon. Uh, Gary Hoffman and uh, Shannon Farron were there. We all agreed to uh, to meet up there at 1 p.m. Gary was late. Uh, but Shannon was there early with her husband. And we boozed it up. And a great selection of of really terrific beers at at Bravery Brewing, and uh, and Arlie Ermy was uh, the the business partner with the guy who started it, and his uh, the guy who started it is his son is a brewmaster, and Arlie was the face of the place, also sort of the spiritual leader of the place, and and he would wander in, um, he was he was not you know believe it or not no matter what you think of him on mail uh, you know on on the show on History Channel or Military Channel. He was he was not a guy sitting there knocking back beer after beer. Uh, you know he would have one, but but he would pop in just to see how things were going. He was he was a, a very common sight there. At Bravery Brewing, his ranch is on the other side of the 14th Freeway, so he was a, a pretty common sight at Van Dam Farms and, and all around uh, Quartz Hill in the Antelope Valley, and uh, and so it was a great memorial. His younger brother was there, uh, who lo- looks like a slightly taller Arlie Ermy. Um, two years younger than him, uh, and he retold the story about uh, when his when his uh, brother became a juvenile delinquent. And when he was eight, he gave his younger brother uh, a cigarette. So the eight-year-old gave the six-year-old a cigarette where they grew up in, in Kansas, and then he wanted to be a Marine all of his life, got, got to the Marine Corps, 
of course, where he was a, a drill instructor uh, for several years and had the role down so well that Stanley Kubrick cast him. I originally hired him as the technical advisor for Full Metal Jacket, but then the actor he hired to be the drill instructor just couldn't deliver like Arlie Ermey could. So Stanley Kubrick famously said, you know what? We're going to recast you as the door gunner in the helicopter. So the guy, the door gunner in the helicopter who makes a joke about how do you shoot women and children, that's the guy that was supposed to be the drill instructor. Arlie Ermey now had the job and obviously uh, carries that movie for the first half with this iconic character. And uh, then there was uh, his granddaughter, Sierra, uh, was there talking about uh, how he he taught her how to shoot, how to ride, how to not slam a door on a car. Uh, great memories by his family there. And then uh, there was a guy who was a Marine in Vietnam who was actually in a platoon that Arlie Ermey was the drill instructor for. And so the guy talked about what was it like being in Marine boot camp with Arlie Ermey as your drill instructor. And he told these stories about Arlie Ermey picking up a rattlesnake on uh, one day during a, a, a land navigation or a, or a forced march, picked up a rattlesnake, put it in a bag, brought it back to the barracks. And he said they had that iconic full metal jacket moment where at 3 a.m. the lights came on, a garbage can went down Main Street. Everyone was up in their underwear, towing the line at attention because Arlie Ermey had lost his snake. So somewhere in the barracks, uh, according to what he said, there was a rattlesnake loose. By accident. Supposedly. <laughs> yeah. um, and uh, and this was actually at MCRD, at Marine Corps Recruit Depot, San Diego. If you ever fly into Lindbergh Field in San Diego and you look to the, to the east, you'll see what looks like a mile-long obstacle course. Well, that is the West Coast uh, boot camp for the United States Marine Corps. The other one is Paris Island in South Carolina. And so Ermi was uh, there in, in, in San Diego. So it was... It was a, a really great event, and there were local junior Marine Corps high school kids uh, who did the flag ceremony. His wife was there, and like I say, his brother. So it was, it was a, a really, really, really neat event. Of course, the place was packed with former Marines, so the, uh, the IQ was around 140 total. <laughs> See what I did? But uh, no, there a lot, of, a lot of jarheads there feeling the Brotherhood of the Corps. But then uh, Arlie Ermey was a guy beloved by every service. And it's evidence if you go into Bravery Brewing, and, and it really is worth If you're ever running up the 14 uh, on a road trip or you're taking the back way to Vegas or whatever, pop into Bravery Brewing and check it out because it's just a really, really cool place. It, it's like it's a monument to Lockheed and the military services and everything. There's silhouettes of different aircraft. There's a giant handmade B-17 hanging from the, the ceiling. And then there's portraits of people who've served uh, in uniform overseas all around the wall. Uh, and just a, a really, really great place. I'm, I'm going to be doing some live shows there. Uh, and I know Gary and Shannon want to do uh, some live uh, Gary and Shannon remote shows. But uh, it's, a, it's a really, really neat place. Uh, definitely worth the, uh, the detour there in, in Lancaster. But a, a terrific event. They were open to, during the day. It looks like, yeah, 12-piece Sunday. Yeah, yeah. And it was a great send-off. And, and uh, you know, and, and, and this is not just a guy, a local celebrity. He was part owner of the place. And his, his attitude and his spirit and everything. I mean, he, he, there's was, there was a beer they have called The Gunny. And they can't keep it in stock right now. They can't keep it from Santa Clarita uh, here to the Valley here in Burbank. They can't keep it in stock. 
because people just want to buy it and, and drink it. It's a really good beer. It is a really good, and they're going to continue making it. It's not like it's a collector's edition, but it's a, it was a fun time, uh, you know, for the right reasons. It was very solemn, but everybody was, uh, was uh, you know, on the same page. And so, and me and Shannon got to booze it up because Gary was late. So that was cool. Shannon's husband and I, uh, we all, uh, we, we had a table and we, we did some boozing. So that was cool. So anyway, that, that is uh, what happened today. Meanwhile, on the other side of the world, uh, South Korea and North Korea, um, Kim Jong-un and President Moon of the Repu of South Korea, Republic of Korea, uh, met on Thursday. And uh, I'll talk about that here we, when we come back. Did, has Kim really given something up? There is this Trump-Kim summit coming up maybe in late May or June. Uh, is all what it appears? What has North Korea actually given up? It really seems like progress is being made, does it not? Well, what really have they given up? The answer right after this, it is a dark secret place. Brian sits in here until uh, midnight, KFI AM 640, more stimulating talk. Forty more stimulating talk. It is the dark secret place. Brian sits in here until midnight next hour. What went wrong in 1980 at Desert One? Uh, 38 years ago this week. Uh, so what went right in Korea on Thursday? Well, if you happen to be watching Fox Business at 5 p.m. on Kennedy, I just happened to be on on Thursday. When uh, this all kicked off, when uh, Kim Jong Un arrived at the uh, the uh, the treaty area, they're in the middle of the DMZ. The very middle of the DMZ, there's an area, the Joint Security Area, where at Panmunjom at uh, Treaty Village, uh, at the actual physical border, uh, there are buildings built across the border, and the north side of the building is North Korea, and the south side is South Korea. And body exchanges uh, happened there, um, prisoner exchanges, so things like that, and a defection happened there two months ago. And so this was where Kim Jong-un uh, came striding out of uh, his headquarters building down the stairs and across to shake hands with, uh, with uh, President Moon of South Korea. So I just happened to be there so uh, on, on with Kennedy. So we took it live. I, I'm not going to play it. If you saw it on Thursday, I got to say she and I – we were the only ones who were live with that. Uh, Fox News wasn't, MSNBC weren't, CNN weren't. Uh, they didn't have anyone in place. And, and so uh, we, we did some really, really good live coverage and, and context, especially, uh, and, and background. I would, I would play you some clips, but I'm sorry. I'm not going to do that. I can, I can go home and do that to myself in the shower as long as I'm not caught. I'm not going to do it on the air. So, so anyway, um, if you saw it, then uh, I would, I would uh, tell you that, that so far from what I've seen now, three days later, I haven't seen anyone else giving the context and, and the background that, that Kennedy and I uh, gave for that. So what was it really a big deal? Uh, well, of course it's a big deal because uh, Kim Il-sung, his grandfather, and Kim Jong-il, his father, never met the whoever their South Korean counterpart was, whether it was uh, the the military dictator wearing a civilian suit, Park Park Chung Hee for for uh, uh, over a decade, uh, South Korea became a real democracy in the eighties. Now it's a very vibrant democracy, including including fights in parliament. So and remember, we did that in the eighteen hundreds. 
We did that. We had fights on the floor of the Congress, floor of the Senate. Um, and so uh, the symbolism of a North Korean leader shaking hands and meeting his South Korean counterpart is undeniable. And that moment happened around 5.30 p.m. on Thursday uh, here at West Coast time. Very briefly, Kim Jong-un pulled Moon into North Korea. Just, I, I don't know what they said between each other, but it looked like he said, you want to visit my country for a second. And he pulled him one step into North Korea for a second or two, and that was not scripted. Everything else was scripted uh, pretty pretty tightly. Uh, and Kim Jong-un then stepped into South Korea. He had a uh, bodyguard entourage. Uh, there was a welcoming party of a, a little boy and a girl. Uh, they took pictures. And then there was an honor guard, and this is important, there was an honor guard of of Korean uh, men dressed in traditional warrior garb going back hundreds of years. So there was not a South Korean army or South Korean Marine honor guard. There were no South there were there were minimal uniforms on on the part of the South Koreans and for that matter the North Koreans. There there were a couple guys in North Korean uniform who accompanied him but they stayed out of the shot. So so Moon and Kim were accompanied by this traditional bodyguard of uh, of traditional Korean garb. Uh, they they met, they talked, they talked one-on-one, -on -one, um, and uh, then they talked uh, privately, and then there was uh, the signing of a document. And in the document, um, in the South Korean media, they reported that the North Koreans in the document said that they would pledge to work for denuclearization. Well, of course, nothing is a sure thing until it's uh, repeated in the North Korean media. Well, the uh, Korean Central TV and then the Rodong Sinmun, the, the daily Korean Workers' Party newspaper, so the Pravda of North Korea, they took a day and a half to do it because, of course, they control the message. But they splashed uh, yesterday, Saturday morning, their time, late Friday, our time. They splashed with a, a, a full-color edition showing all the photos of the handshakes, the whole thing. Uh, also repeating um, in in Korean exactly what the South Korean media said, that North Korea was uh, entering into a uh, period of, of uh, guided works for peace and that the great sacrifice has been uh, realized and that we will now work as hard uh, for denuclearization. Um, but does that word translate directly though, like as it does in English? In English, you say denuclearization – and we think you mean uh, what Gaddafi did. Gaddafi denuclearized. He had the IAEA come to Libya and certify that his entire research uh, uh, effort and bomb-making effort was completely dismantled. The South Africans denuclearized. The Ukrainians denuclearized. Bet, bet they regret that now. Um, does, does that mean that that's what the North Koreans say? Now the North Koreans are saying that they're going to um, demil. They're going to demilitarize their test facility, which we know is probably unsuitable for tests anyway. So what what does all this mean? I mean, again, I don't want to diminish what you saw on Thursday. It was significant, but what really have the North Koreans given away? And I'll give you a spoiler alert. So far, nothing. And I'll tell you why when we come back. It is a dark secret place. Brian suits in here until midnight. KFI AM six forty more stimulating talk.
KFI AM, 640 more stimulating talk. Dark Secret Place. Not enough songs start with 20 seconds of distortion anymore. Not enough since the breakup of Steppenwolf or the death of John Lennon. Well, so the uh, the grand meeting at the Joint Security Area, Treaty Village, Penmanjan, uh, made worldwide headlines. Uh, though very very few outlets were covering it live, one of the few was uh, Kennedy on Fox Business. And listen to her guest. He's brilliant. This is an extraordinary moment, and that's an extraordinary handshake. Yes, absolutely. Hand-in-hand, uh, hand, the two leaders that's there. very familiar. Shaking hands, holding hands, discussing things. President Moon. What did you say you want me to read? You want to hear yeah, it again? Yeah, I, I heard that voice, and it, some, it sparked something. Oh, yeah, you spoiler. It's me. This oh. is an extraordinary moment, and that's an extraordinary handshake. Yes, absolutely. Great uh, insight, hand me. Hand in hand, the two leaders there, shaking hands, holding hands, shaking discussing hands things. There. President Moon obviously looks And he uh, took him like into North Korea, politics. now they're stepping back into South Korea. Country, so I jump in and, and say, I clear like my throat, of course. Moon face see what he just did? Malice, he yes. just took him by the hand, he just took him by the hand and made him step into North Korea. Interesting. So they have uh, now there's, straddled now there's, two now countries back in the DMZ. Um, and now they are, and, and this meeting, by the way, uh, loaded with all sorts of symbolism and imagery. Everything has been um, nailed down to the T, every aspect of this meeting, uh, where they stand, what they eat, where it takes place. It's all been very, very carefully orchestrated. Um, and just like the old Kennedy and Suit show here on KFI, we do talk over each other. So that's... Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> let the guy talk. Well, it's because there's a delay. I'm sitting here in Studio City, and oh. I've got like a... There's, I'm on a satellite, so it's like a two-second delay. So, uh, But um, but it was, it was a good hour. I thought I, I will defend uh, our, our coverage. Uh, we, we did uh, terrific. and then But it wasn't... Not a lot of competition because not a lot of other American media outlets were covering it, understanding that it was actually pretty significant news. Uh, and so uh, when all the food is eaten and the flowers are exchanged, what really was given away in this uh, declaration that the two presidents, well, Kim Jong-un, whatever you want to call him, I, I call him a god king because North Korea is a theocracy, but uh, President Moon was actually elected. Uh, so he is an actual president constitutionally mandated in the whole thing. So what what did they sign? Well, remember what I've been telling you is that North Korea is done testing their um, their H-bomb. They they got to H-bomb at test number six, like India did, Pakistan did, and China did. That was their model. They they succeeded. They have an H-bomb. Um, with computer simulation and uh, laboratory simulation, undoubtedly the one that they tested is the one that Kim Jong-un was photographed molesting, touching, and rubbing. Um, and the uh, the standard American testing protocol would be, well, now they need to do a full-scale re-entry test with a warhead that can actually survive uh, Mach 9 re-entry into the Earth's atmosphere. Well, really? Do they? Or did they maybe start with that in the early 90s? Because they they already have the manufacturing technology and the actual model from former Soviet scientists who uh, Kim's dad, Kim, uh, Kim Jong-il, uh, paid these impoverished Russian scientists in the 90s to come and give him certain key technologies. And one of them probably was uh, a reentry warhead that would actually survive reentry. And so the North Koreans certainly feel that they have a complete system. They have a missile to get to America or wherever they want. Um, they have a warhead that has worked six times in a row, five times as an A-bomb. And now the H-bomb, the boosted fusion uh, H-bomb, worked 
and and by the way, it worked so well it destroyed the uh, the test range. It destroyed the mountain that it was on. And so now uh, Kim gets to symbolically close his test range. This is like America closing the Nevada test range because we can't use it anymore because it's irradiated. But we declare, well, we're going to close it. Uh, so why, why doesn't everyone send inspectors and come watch? So that's effectively what he's going to do. So in other words, as I've been saying, he doesn't need any more tests. So when he says, I'm going to stop testing, uh, and by the way, I will accept American troops on the Korean Peninsula, what he's doing there is pragmatic because he knows that the United States is not going to leave the Korean Peninsula, even for a full accounting of North Korean nukes and actual denuclearization. If anything, that's the reason we would want to stay and double down in South Korea. Uh, defending this long-term ally, which, again, to remind everyone, approximately uh, 30,000 Americans died in the Korean War. Um, sometimes that number is falsely uh, called 38,000, but regardless, uh, 30,000 Americans died in the Korean War, so we have skin in the game, and the North Koreans are, are recognizing that. Um, so what did he give up? Well, if you're counting along at home, so far nothing. He has accomplished all of his strategic goals in getting the weapon system that can um, honestly threaten the United States. He doesn't need to test it anymore. So he can give up testing and say, oh, I'm going to give up testing. And uh, we buy it, and it makes him look good. But make no mistake, this is kind of a big deal, him visiting South Korea. Because as I've told you, uh, the, the guy understands that this is not a long-term solution. Sitting around threatening your neighbors with nuclear destruction is is not how you build a prosperous society. And and again, Kim Jong-un went to high school in Switzerland, speaks English. When when Dennis Rodman needs another Hennessy, uh, he can say in English to Kim Jong-un, can I have another Hennessy? And Kim understands him. He, he knows what a prosperous society looks like. Um, and so his pledge to begin negotiating an actual formal end of the Korean War because, again, since June of 1950, when the North Koreans invaded South Korea, a state of war has existed. There's a ceasefire slash armistice uh, that's uh, happened since 1953, but it's not a formal end of war. So he has said the words, and those were republished in the Korean daily, Rodong, the North Korean Communist Party daily, Rodong Sinmun, that a end to the Korean War is sought. So clearly... Uh, unless Kim Jong-un is, uh, is, has us all bamboozled in one of the most amazing strategic deceptions of all time, which is a possibility, uh, if that's not uh, the, the case, then he really truly does want to pivot his country's economy to something more along the lines closer to what China looks like. Not a democracy, and he's certainly not stepping down from power, but he's also not reunifying with South Korea. And also, he maybe doesn't even have to. But what he does need to do are some free market uh, reforms and look a little more like China. Again, keep in mind what I've been telling you. China's number one strategic goal, foreign policy goal, is to prevent a reunified Korea. Korea right now, South Korea right now, those 48 million people south of the DMZ are the seventh largest economy in the world. They're dominating Asian culture. I mean, we're talking about 2 billion people. 50 million people are dominating one-third of the world's uh, population in cultural achievement. Music, and you, you know, I'm, I'm kind of goofing around when I play the K-pop, but that's what one-third of the world is listening to. 
South Korean music, South Korean TV, and South Korean movies are dominating Asia. And Kim sees this up north. And he knows that they are the same people. And he would love to be a rock star. He would love to be the 29-year-old guy handing out awards to North Korean boy bands or TV series or whatever. And he sees that the Korean people are industrious, brilliant, innovative, hardworking. And if half of the ethnicity called Koreans can dominate Asia's culture, imagine what would happen if there was another Korea producing consumer goods. Imagine the money that North Korea would make if they stopped exporting meth, counterfeit $20 bills, and cheap tanks and AK-47s. Imagine what they would do if they were exporting smartphones. But doesn't he have to keep them in the dark, the public, in North Korea? Or does he? Uh, that's the thing. Um, how do you let people down uh, who, for three generations, have been venerating you as a, a holy offspring? Your, your dad was a, the holy offspring of the holiest of offspring, Kim Il-sung, who, I mean, after all, their calendar's not even ours. It's not 2018 in North Korea. It's Juche 107. It's 107 years since Kim Il-sung was born. That's, the, that's year zero for that, North that's Korea. That's how bad it is. Huh? Yeah. So how do you let them down? Um, so has he given something up? So far, he hasn't given something up. He has given something, and that's the symbolism. Um, so uh, the next step is Trump meets him in May. How does that go? That and more coming up right after this. It is a dark secret place. Brian Suits in here until midnight. KFI AM 640. More stimulating talk. Real thing, come and see the real thing. Come and see. Come and see the real thing. Come and see the real thing. Come and see. There's a meaning there, but the meaning there doesn't really mean a thing. Come and see the real thing. Come and see the real thing. Come and see. KFI AM 640. More stimulating talk. Dark Secret Place. Brian sits in here until uh, midnight with a non-stop commercial-free dance party of mid-60s obscure Australian classics. Russell Morris with The Real Thing. Anyway, so uh, speaking of that, what will be The Real Thing in May? Segway. Uh, when President Trump meets Kim Jong-un, uh, as well as South, the South Korean president. And Vladimir Putin, uh, Xi Jinping, and for that matter, Shinzo Abe of Japan will not be there. Uh, those were the six parties in the six-party talks when it was a six-party party, and a six-party party just doesn't stop. It was China, Russia, Japan, South Korea, North Korea, and the U.S. Of course, for North Korea, the brass ring for the past 30 years has been one-on-one -on -one talks with the U.S. as an equal. But we'll, we would never have treated them as an equal because, well, they're, they're not an equal. Um, nor are they now, uh, for this matter. But uh, now they are a nuclear power. But it looks like they're they're uh, making movement, right? Are they? So um, so far, here's what we have: the North Koreans have said that uh, international inspectors can come and see them dismantle the nuclear test range at Pungyi Ri. Pungyi Ri is a large valley complex in the northeast of uh, North Korea, about 100 miles from the Chinese border. Uh, they depopulated it, and then they began excavating uh, in 2003, uh, knowing that they'd be doing A-bomb tests, and that's where all six of their nuke tests have happened. Now, in the last one, the one that registered a, whatever it was, a 4.9 on uh, Richter scales, uh, far bigger than anything up to that point, the five prior tests, so that's how we know it was an H-bomb. Well, in the weeks after that H-bomb test, 
about a year and a half ago, there was another minor earthquake, and it was like a 4-1. Well, when they reviewed satellite photos of the test range um, using, uh, using laser measurement as well as oblique satellite photos, they saw that there was a huge cave-in at the test site, that the H-bomb underground had uh, created a gigantic void, and then a few weeks later, it just gave up. And went and crashed. Now, does that mean that the test facility has to be shut down? Well, here's what a test facility is. You don't just dig a hole and then put a bomb in it and someone lights a fuse. Wiley Coyote lights a fuse and you run away. Uh, it, the, the complex actually was wired, just like the Nevada test range is, White Sands is, uh, the uh, Russian test range, the Semi-Palatinsk is, the Chinese test range, the Indian test range. You wire it because you want all that explosive data because that is why you're testing it. You need that data. Well, the North Koreans were no different. They had Pungi Ri completely wired. Well, it's all destroyed now. So effectively, it's no longer a test site now. So what are they going to do uh, with South Korean and American inspectors watching? What are they going to do? Well, I don't know. Apparently, hook up some trailers to a truck and drive away, I guess. Um, did radiation escape? Well, uh, we're going to go find out. Uh, we do have aircraft that uh, that sniff the air. Those have been all con flying almost constantly for, for four years off the east coast of uh, North Korea. But th that is going to be a big a big test. American inspectors and South Korean inspectors wearing coats and ties and shoes and getting off a helicopter and inspecting a North Korean nuclear facility. Did you think a year ago, remember a year ago we were on the brink of nuclear war because of Trump and the whole thing. A year later, we're talking about an American cadre of inspectors going to North Korea's test facility. So that, that's progress. So are they giving anything up? Well, so far, nothing real. But again, one thing they're giving up is the symbol of Kim coming to South Korea and meeting his South Korean counterpart. Um, they're pledging that this is going to happen, that American and South Korean inspectors will come to a North Korean nuclear facility and watch them dismantle it. So if that happens, that's another thing. But uh, about a month from now, three to four weeks from now, when Trump and Kim meet, again, probably they're at the uh, the DMZ in Korea, because it's the one place where everyone on all three sides can guarantee security. Will North Korea really actually agree that denuclearize means surrender, account for, um, admit, inspect and demilitarize all their nuclear uh, warheads. I don't think so. Um, I think to them, denuclearize means everybody agrees not to be the first to use nuclear weapons. Because otherwise, and you have to put yourself in their position, why else would you have done this for 20 years? To give it up? I mean, you could have given it up 10 years ago. But denuclearize to the North Koreans means something different than what it means to the Trump administration, and for that matter, North Korea, and the rest of the world. Denuclearize to them means take the nukes off the table. And just North Korea gets to say, you know what? We're going to be like Israel. Everybody knows they have nukes. Everybody, especially their neighbors. Their neighbors have been told unofficially they have nukes, but they'll never admit it. And of course, you'll never even see them use them unless you're about to push Israel into the sea. So we're going to be like Israel. That's probably the best outcome we can hope for uh, with uh, North Korea. But are we further away from nuclear war than we were a year ago? Yeah. You know what? Yes, we are. Uh, is, is it because of something the United States did? 
Well, n- listen, anyone who doesn't give Trump credit for stepping up the preparations, the full-scale dress rehearsals for a aerial assault on North Korea, um, and then one of the dress rehearsals was two weeks ago in Syria, for a full aerial assault on North Korean facilities, anyone who doesn't give him credit for doing that, which Obama never did and Bush never did, then they're just sort of showing the true colors uh, in regards to Trump. All right, uh, it is a dark secret place. Next hour, Operation Eagle Claw, 1980. Eight Americans are dead. Desert One in Iran was uh, the end of the Carter presidency. What was supposed to happen? How were we going to rescue American hostages from the U.S. Embassy? I'll give you the deets right after this. KFI AM 640, more stimulating talk. KFI AM 640, more stimulating talk. It is hour number two, the dark secret place. Brian sits in here until midnight. It was this week in 1980, 38 years ago, that the attempted rescue of American citizens, American hostages being held in the U.S. Embassy in Tehran, came to a uh, burning abortive end in a desolate piece of desert uh, south of Tehran, Iran, the Islamic Republic of Iran, uh, codenamed Desert One. In the Army, we have a process called the After Action Review, and uh, what we do is we take the mission that we were given, and we start with what was the mission, um, what went right, and then what went wrong, and how can we sustain the good stuff, and how can we solve for the bad stuff. So, <clears throat> Applying that process, uh, let's do that for Operation Eagle Claw, as it was called by the Carter administration in uh, 1980. November 4th, 1979, a group of Iranian students, and I'm doing air fingers here, stormed the U.S. Embassy in Tehran, taking more than 60 American hostages. It was not the first time in 1979 that the American embassy had been overrun. Uh, It had happened a few months earlier, and it only happened for a few hours, and the Iranian government, the newly installed Islamic revolutionary uh, Iranian government, uh, very quickly controlled the students. And uh, this pretty much uh, put to rest anyone's question about whether the students were organically uh, demonstrating or whether or not they actually were organized by the new Iranian government, the very, very, very anti-American government, or if, if, uh, or, or not. Anyway, they were. For the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, um, the elite of the newly installed regime, they observed, and this it was a test in the uh, months before November to see how the Americans would respond. Well, the American president, Jimmy Carter, uh, responded as he would become legendary for, and that would be in a a feckless, limp, emasculated way. Um, He uh, made protestations through the Swiss uh, embassy in Tehran and uh, made uh, made strong statements that they, they knew that he would not actually follow up on And so the Iranians cleared the students out, but they learned their lesson about Jimmy Carter, that they could get whatever they wanted out of Jimmy Carter. So on November 4th, 1979, this time thousands of students, very well equipped and armed, um, uh, with very detailed maps and briefings about where to go in the sprawling American embassy compound, 
quickly overran the embassy and rounded up all but a handful of American diplomats. Famously, uh, there were uh, a half dozen or more uh, who were outside the embassy when this happened, and uh, being smart enough not to go back to the embassy, they were taken in by the Canadians. And if you've seen the movie Argo, uh, which is a pretty good depiction of how they were taken out of Iran, uh, one, one gigantic... Uh, oversight in that movie is the role that the Canadians played. The Canadians uh, had a far more active role uh, than that that movie and Ben Affleck uh, showed you. But re- regardless, it it looks good. Uh, the period clothing uh, and everything. It, it Argo is a terrific movie. There's never been a movie done about the hostage crisis, the 444 total total day uh, hostage crisis. So. <clears throat> Um, the mission was this, and it, I don't want to get into any of the background about uh, Shah Mohammad Reza Pahlavi uh, or his father, who was deposed by the British Soviets in World War II, or the uh, 1953 coup by the CIA. None of that crap. If you're wearing a uniform and your mission in 1980 was to come up with a plan to account for every single one of those hostages and bring them safely home to the U.S., you really don't care about any of the cultural baggage or CIA baggage or any of that crap. So that is not a planning consideration for us. All we know is it's a non-permissive environment on the ground, as we say, and that the people there effing hate us. Oh, well, that's how it works generally when America goes to war. So the mission is... um, go into the embassy compound and safely remove all the American citizens and their dependents who are there um, and guarantee their safe exit out of Iran to uh, whatever landing zone you want in Turkey and Saudi Arabia, whatever, just get them out. If you have time, a secondary mission is to destroy sensitive parts of the embassy uh, to avoid any sort of embarrassing revelations or whatever. But that that really is not your primary mission. Your primary mission is to get those hostages home because this thing is dragging on. It makes America look impotent. Um, and it's an election year, and Jimmy Carter wants to be elected. So come up with a plan, practice the plan, uh, train for the plan, equip for the plan, and stand by. Hopefully we don't need the plan. That is your mission. You are uh, General Vaught, uh, or you're Charlie Beckwith, Colonel Charlie Beckwith, the head of Delta Force. Delta Force was newly organized. Uh, Special Forces Operational Detachment, Delta, had been put together in the mid and uh, uh, mid 70s, mid and late 70s, to mimic the British Special Air Service, the SAS. The British SAS. Uh, are, uh, to this day, the most legendary special force uh, organized in World War II um, and uh, from the 50s to the 60s to the, uh, the, uh, the embassy raid in 1980. Uh, to this day, the SAS are still considered some of the best special forces on Earth. Well, the United States Army wanted to mimic uh, right down to the organization of the SAS. Uh, that is... Uh, in troops and squadrons instead of companies and battalions. The Rangers are in companies and battalions of the Ranger Regiment. The Special Forces, Green Berets, 
are in operational detachments who are parts of companies, who are parts of battalions. But Delta Force imitated SAS, the British SAS. Delta Force is organized in troops and squadrons. Their first commander, Sergeant Charlie Beckwith, actually went through SAS selection, and then he actually did a liaison tour, an exchange tour, where he actually commanded an SAS troop for, uh, for a year or two. So he was the ideal guy to organize Delta Force and uh, organize its early selection process and the whole thing. So by 1979, these guys had been selected. Uh, they'd been trained. They had one of the largest small arms budget in the entire U.S. military. They were, in many cases, guys who were not even unconventional enough for special forces. Uh, but there were <clears throat> a lot of them. It was clear that they were very good. Uh, and that if anybody was going to be handed this mission to uh, take the U.S. Embassy hostages out, um, it would be Delta Force. But Delta Force was not a standalone force. They had no planes. They didn't have vehicles. They didn't have submarines. They didn't have satellites. They were just a bunch of guys at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, under a new thing called SOCOM, Special Operations Command. So... Your mission is get these 60 or so people out of hostile territory, a enormous city, a sprawling city of four to five million, uh, over a mile high in the winter, in November, possibly, um, and uh, get them out without a gigantic firefight, killing hundreds of Iranian civilians and probably resulting in uh, many dozens of, of your people's deaths. Uh, so that's your mission. So what should this look like? What does right look like? Before we get to what happened, let's talk about what was supposed to happen. So what was Operation Eagle Claw supposed to look like on April 24th, 1980, right after this? It is the Dark Secret Place. Brian Suits in here with the story of Operation Eagle Claw 38 years ago this week on KFI AM640. More stimulating talk. Michael Chappé with the news. KFI AM 640, more stimulating talk. It is the dark secret place. Brian suits in here until midnight. Um, so it is 1980, April 24th. Operation Eagle Claw is underway. This is the operation to free the American hostages held at the U.S. Embassy uh, since uh, November of 1979. And you're to do it without... Uh, undue Iranian casualties. Uh, the people holding the hostages there at the embassy, they're, they're free game. They, they know what they're there for. The so-called students have been replaced. Uh, they're all now uh, Revolutionary Guard Corps uh, members. They're young men of military age with, uh, with excellent equipment and better training than the Iranian army of, of, uh, of 1980. So uh, they're combatants. And after all, a uh, embassy is sovereign soil of the country whose embassy it is. The U.S. Embassy in Tehran is literally American soil. They have violated international law, and they have invaded the United States, which is why many people, me included, um, will say to the day he dies that uh, Jimmy Carter's biggest mistake was that right after the Iranians took the embassy— he should have asked for a declaration of war because a declaration of war doesn't mean that the B-52s are in the air. It just means that the set of rules that we were dealing with right before you took our embassy are now at the window. 
we now have a different set of rules that we can deal with uh, legally in terms of international law. But Jimmy Carter didn't do that. So what was supposed to happen? Here's what was supposed to happen. The Delta Force guys, numbering about 59 or 60, uh, with some uh, some backups, had been uh, training for a few months on a scale model of the U.S. Embassy uh, in Tehran. They've been training at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. Uh, they've been uh, uh, in the scale model. They were able to simulate uh, distances uh, for vocal orders, sight distances, uh, shooting distances. Uh, the uh, height of the walls was known. Uh, the size of the buildings, uh, the layout, the blueprint. So it was all simulated at Fort Bragg. And Delta Force, and, uh, in the newly formed Special Operations Commander, SOCOM, felt that they had a plan that was doable. And the plan worked like this. Here's what was supposed to happen. Delta Force was going to be the main assault force into the embassy, plus hostage grabbing. They were going to be supplemented with U.S. Army Rangers who were going to be setting up roadblocks on the main road outside the U.S. Embassy. They would also have Air Force uh, combat controllers, the guys on the ground with these special secret radios, to talk to things like AC-130 gunships that were going to be orbiting over Tehran. Uh, above the AC-130s would be U.S. Navy F-14s who would be dominating the airspace over Tehran. The... Um, uh, the entire kit and caboodle were moved forward to Egypt in the uh, week before April 24th, 1980. Uh, in Egypt, they did some final run-throughs, and then they moved forward to their final position, an island off of Oman called Masira, or Goat Island. Uh, you can look on Google Earth. There's an airfield at the very north end of the island. Oman has always been a very U.S.-friendly country. And uh, the Rangers, the entire assault team, plus all the C-130s that were going to participate in the mission, moved to the forward base at Masira on April 23rd. Uh, they rested up, they gassed up, and the next night when the sun went down, they, uh, they got into the C-130s and they headed to a rendezvous point called Desert One. Simultaneously on the USS Nimitz, eight... Uh, newly built RH-53s, the Navy's longest-range heavy-lift helicopter, the traditional Sea Stallion, the CH-53, on steroids. The RH-53 was a minesweeper. It had redundant systems. It was very light, but it had main, main deal was it had long range. Those eight helicopters left the Nimitz at the same time heading north into Iran on their way to Desert One. The Delta Force commander... Colonel Beckwith had said that he needed a minimum of six helicopters to accomplish the mission. So the Navy gave him eight. The eight helicopters made their way up to Desert One. Um, theoretically, approximately 1 a.m. local time, the six C-130s, uh, which had the assault team of Delta Force guys, the Rangers, etc., they landed at Desert One, which had already been reconnoitered by a CIA team two weeks before. They had placed uh, infrared landing lights, uh, remote-controlled infrared landing lights, and the entire site straddled a highway. So the six C-130s are uh, on the ground. When the helicopters were to land nearly simultaneously, even though they flew up individually, the eight helicopters were supposed to land almost simultaneously 
Uh, and as they were refueling from one of the C-130s, or two of the C-130s, the Delta Force commandos were going to get off the C-130 with all their gear and then get onto pre-designated helicopters. The helicopters would complete fueling. The refueling C-130s, uh, the electronic communi- uh, countermeasure C-130s, all of them would take turns taking off, and they would exit Iran, uh, having been undetected, and go back to Goat Island. The helicopters, meanwhile, the eight helicopters, now cross-filled with, with uh, Delta Force and Rangers, et cetera, they would fly forward to a place called Desert 2. Desert 2 was north of Iran, pardon me, north of Tehran, in the mountains. At Desert 2, the entire team and the eight helicopters were going to lay low for 24 hours uh, and do uh, final checks. Uh, contingencies for goat herders or civilians was simply to detain them for 24 hours and give them approximately 500 bucks American money for their trouble. What was going to happen on the second night at Desert 2 was CIA-operated trucks with uh, Farsi-speaking drivers, native speakers working for the CIA, would come up to the mountains, load up the Delta Force guys, and head back into Tehran about midnight uh, local time. The, this was the assault force. The assault force would then uh, look like an Iranian army convoy bombing through Tehran, which is a very common sight, and they would pull up to the American embassy. What was supposed to happen then? I'll tell you that right after this. It is the Dark Secret Place. Brian Suits in here until midnight. KFI M640. More stimulating talk. Michael Chappelle with the news. KFI AM 640, more stimulating talk. It is the Dark Secret Place. Brian Suits here detailing the failure 38 years ago of Operation Eagle Claw, the uh, Special Operations Command mission to free the American hostages from the U.S. Embassy in Tehran. So uh, where did I leave you? Um, We are at Desert 2. The assault team are in trucks. The trucks are driven by CIA operatives who speak Farsi. Uh, they're dressed in Iranian army uniforms. They are supposed to convoy into Tehran and just look like any other Iranian army convoy, which is very common, pull up to the U.S. Embassy, and immediately the rangers who were along on the raid uh, or on the mission pop out of the trucks, the first and the last truck, and they set up roadblocks on the main road that goes in front of the uh, U.S. Embassy. The trucks pull up on the sidewalk and right up against the 10-foot wall. The Delta Force uh, assault teams stretch ladders across the top of the trucks onto the wall, and they begin crossing. The Delta Force uniform were black watch caps, the standard wool watch cap, uh, GI jackets, the standard uh, olive drab, you know, four-pocket field jacket, as it's called, but dyed black. And then blue jeans. The reason for this was to look like the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, to look like the students who were now guarding the hostages at 2 a.m. There were other recognition symbols on the uniform so they wouldn't kill each other. So they cross uh, over to the wall. They bring ladders, go down the ladders, and they begin splitting up by teams with each team with an individual mission going to different buildings Um, and with the assumption that no hostage is walking around free. We knew this because of inside information. Kill everybody in the room, take the hostages out, gain control of them, get them back to the wall, 
meet up, count up, get a head count. This was supposed to happen within 10 minutes, that all 60 hostages were supposed to be accounted for within about 10 minutes back at the wall. Um, there was time built in. There was another 10 minutes built in to search for any stragglers. If no stragglers uh, were present, then not a problem. You go up the ladders uh, and then assist them uh, over the wall into the trucks. And the trucks go to a uh, local airfield, which was going to be seized uh, by U.S. forces. And then American C-141 Starlifter, the precursor to the C-17, American uh, Starlifters would land the assault team, the hostages, everybody gets on the Starlifters. They fly out of Iranian airspace at about 2,000 feet, uh, land it in Sirlik Air Base in Turkey. Everybody gets off. TN medals. Jimmy Carter gets reelected. Um, hopefully, no shots are fired in Tehran, but if they are, it'll be our shots and they'll be the targets. And the hostage crisis is over. America, through an amazing bold stroke, has stunned the world. Kind of like the Israelis did at Entebbe on July 4th, 1976. We crossed the earth and accomplished the impossible. What did happen? What did happen was this. The plan worked all the way to Desert One um, for the fixed-wing aircraft and the Delta Force assault team. They arrived intact. The six C-130s were undetected. They landed at Desert One. Uh, uh, Army Rangers blocked the highway that became the uh, the airstrip, uh, even though a bus full of civilians came by. Uh, one of the Rangers shot a rocket into the bus engine, took everybody off the bus, and uh, we detained them with the intention that we were probably going to fly them that night back to Oman and hold on to them for a day or two. Um, but then the helicopters proved to be the weak link. Well, here was the deal. The helicopters left the Nimitz not as a formation of eight helicopters doing a common navigation, but they individually navigated up to Desert One. So here was the problem. There was a weather anomaly called the Haboob. Anyone who's been in Iraq or Iran, you know that several times a year you get these enormous fine particulate dust storms that go from ground level up to 30,000 feet. It eats jet engines. It gets up your nose. It gets in your ass. It gets between your toes. It's, they're terrible. The only thing you can do is go indoors. Well, there was a haboob going on. One of the Navy helicopters got into that. The pilot um, got disoriented. He put the thing on the ground, and they had to be picked up by a rescue flight. Uh, another one uh, had a hydraulic issue immediately and turned around back to the Nimitz. So now we're down to six, the minimum number of helicopters. Six was the minimum that Delta Force said they could do the mission with. Well, as they landed at Desert One, the helicopters came in, one, two, three, four, five, six. The pilots were highly disoriented. Um, The pilot of one of the uh, RH-53s stated that his aircraft was non-mission capable because he got a warning light that he had a crack in uh, one of the rotor wings, Uh, you know, one of the, the rotors of his helicopter. And Colonel Beckwith said, Yes or no, is that aircraft mission capable? And the guy said, I'm not flying that up to Desert 2. It is non-mission capable. So Beckwith relayed this to Cairo, which was the forward headquarters. Cairo talked to Jimmy Carter uh, and the the American uh, uh, National Security Council. Zbigniew Brzezinski was a, a big, heavy pusher of the military option on this, ironically. 
And they were told, well, it's the local mission commander's call. So the, so back down at Desert One, Charlie Beckwith said, you know what? I don't want to cut down the personnel. Um, I don't want to go up there with five helicopters uh, and be short 25 guys. We need uh, the minimum of what we trained with. We can't cut it down. Um, we just can't do this. Let's call it off for the night and let's maybe uh, pick up tomorrow or maybe in, in a couple of days. But it's off for tonight. Let's all get the hell out of here. So at that point, the Delta Force guys are back on the C-130s. The C-130s are going to head back to Oman. The helicopters are heading back to the USS Nimitz. But they're all low on fuel because the plan was that the helicopters were going to refuel their Desert One anyway. Well, in the meantime, the C-130s, waiting an hour and a half for the helicopters to show up, never shut down their engines because they couldn't trust that they could get them started again. So as a safety measure, they never shut down their engines. So they began using their own fuel. Even the refueling C-130s had to, uh, had to cannibalize the fuel that they brought and uh, fuel their own C-130 because the engines were idling for an hour and a half. So now the helicopters uh, begin the, uh, the laborious process of uh, air taxiing. They couldn't roll on this dry lake bed because it was uh, very soft. So they had to actually hover at night at 2 a.m. and maneuver around the C-130s to get in position to refuel. It was uh, during uh, one of these maneuvers that one of the Navy helicopters collided with the rear of a C-130. The rotor blade cut into the fuselage. Uh, the C-130 was engulfed in flames. The helicopter was engulfed in flames. And when the fires went out uh, and everybody was accounted for, and reloaded onto C-130s and, leave, and abandoned the helicopters behind, uh, the headcount was eight missing. The eight missing were three Marine crewmen in the helicopters uh, and, uh, and seven Air Force personnel, uh, uh, air commandos, as they called them, from Air Force Special Operations. The mission uh, was aborted. It was a disaster. The next day, of course, the Iranians found Desert One, uh, found the destroyed helicopters, uh, which made burnt silhouettes from the top down into the desert, uh, a gigantic silhouette of a C-130, and, of course, eight American bodies burnt beyond recognition, which the Iranians immediately uh, wrapped in plastic and brought up to Tehran and put on display in front of the U.S. Embassy. Uh, what went wrong? What was uh, the issue? Uh, why weren't these things worked out? The answer right after this, a very fundamental problem in, uh, in, in military operations going back 20,000 years. It is uh, my after-action review, the autopsy of Operation Eagle Claw on the, this week, 1980 in Iran. Uh, it is a dark secret place. Brian sits in here uh, one more time. KFI AM640, more stimulating talk. Michael Chappé with the news. KFI AM 640, more stimulating talk. It is a dark secret place. Brian suits in here one last time with uh, the wrap-up of Operation Eagle Claw, 1980, uh, April 24th and 25th of uh, 1980, what has now uh, become to be called the fiasco. Uh, so what went wrong with Operation Eagle Claw, the abortive attempt to rescue American hostages in the Iranian embassy? Well, from the outset, Delta Force had been assuming 
a level of uh, competence and professionalism with the helicopter crews that they would have received from Army helicopter crews. Um, they were told that because the Army couldn't move helicopters forward to uh, to Oman or to the USS Nimitz, that they would go ahead and they would be using U.S. Navy helicopters, which is not a problem as long as you practice with them. Well, this was the problem. Delta Force never practiced the movement with the helicopters because the assumption was, well, the helicopters are just buses. The helicopters are just getting our guys from Desert 1 to Desert 2. And then the next night, they're flying home. They're flying to Turkey, flying back to the Nimitz, whatever. They're just buses. We don't need to practice that piece. Well, that turned out to be the Achilles heel. And part of the reason it was the Achilles heel was because in the planning of Operation Eagle Claw, it was all a SOCOM operation, Special Operations Command operation. The Air Force had uh, a Special Operation Wing at Hurlburt Field in Florida. The Air, Air Force had been doing special operations since the Vietnam War, like the Army had, and in fact, even the Navy had. Um, but you know who didn't join SOCOM was the Marines. The Marine Corps said when, when SOCOM was formed, we don't want to be a part of that because we're already elite. We're all elite. We're Marines. We're special operations already. You guys go play your little games. We'll be over here. We don't need your SOCOM. Well, when the planning for Operation Eagle Club was coming down, the Air Force obviously had a big piece. It was transporting the commandos to Desert One. It was providing close air support with AC-130s the next night. Uh, it was uh, electronic countermeasures. It was jamming Iranian radio and telephone systems. It was shooting down uh, Iranian fighters if they foolishly went up in the air. Uh, the Army's piece, of course, was Delta Force, uh, as well as the Rangers. The Air Force also had ground combatants and combat uh, controllers. The Navy obviously had a very important piece with F-14s flying combat air patrol over Tehran, uh, owning uh, Iranian airspace. And then, of course, the Navy helicopters, the new RH-53s that were going to launch from the Nimitz. But you know who didn't have a piece of Operation Eagle Claw was the Marine Corps. So the Marine Corps wanted a piece. And the Marine Corps suggested, well, what if our air crews took over these flew these Navy helicopters up to Desert One? Well, that's all well and good, except for one little Achilles heel here, and that is that they never practiced the mission with the Army and the Air Force. The entire mission never went through a dress rehearsal. It was never uh, factored into the time. There was no dress rehearsal a week before uh, go day, April 24th. So the Marine aviators flying a familiar aircraft, the uh, the RH-53, which was almost identical to the Marine Corps Sea Stallion, CH-53, that's not a problem. The problem was familiarity with, uh, with local airspace and local weather conditions like the Haboob, the, uh, the sandstorm, uh, as well as familiarity with the mission and the problems that might come up with the mission. So there was never a dress rehearsal done. And that, by the way, that goes on SOCOM. That's not on the Marines and that's not on the Navy. Uh, or the Army, but in all honesty, the Army was driving this, and the Army should have insisted on a dress rehearsal uh, at Puerto Rico or on Oman or something like that. But there never was a day when all the various moving pieces came together. The focus was on what happens when we get to the embassy, not how do we get to the embassy. The getting to the embassy was assumed to be a fairly easy, uh, light-lifting sort of a thing. Well, that turned out to be what 
the uh, the Achilles heel of the entire mission was that the air crew, both Air Force and Marine pilots in the Navy helicopters, uh, were uh, had not ever flown at night, hadn't flown together at night. The Marine pilots hadn't used Air Force ground controllers before. Uh, they hadn't attempted a refueling like this uh, with uh, night vision goggles in a dusty atmosphere, uh, brown out uh, in a low hover. So they had never uh, been able to identify all these contingencies that they could have retrained and planned for. The, the actual operation was the first time all this stuff came together. So if you had looked at this on paper and said, what could go wrong? That should have been your first clue, that there was no practice, no dress rehearsal, no walkthrough, uh, no, no real-time wargaming. They never even had the commanders together in the same room uh, to sit there and simulate in real time what was going to happen at Desert One. What would happen if we were found out by a bus full of Iranians? Uh, what will happen if a police car shows up? Uh, what will happen uh, if a meteor illuminates the desert? None of that was done. No wargaming was done. It was simply assumed that Desert One was going to be the easy part. And getting up to Desert Two was also going to be the easy part, that the heavy lifting was going to be Delta Force, uh, getting to the embassy and doing all the bang bang. So would it have worked? Had they got to the embassy, um, uh, I, I, I know it's a very complex plan, but I think it would have worked. I think it uh, also would have left behind a lot of dead Iranian Revolutionary Guards guys, but I don't think the world would have a hell of a lot of uh, sympathy for them. I think some American hostages um, uh, would have been collateral damage, would have been casualties. Uh, as, as we know now, two of them were uh, are unaccounted for. Who knows what the Iranians would have done to them. But uh, let's say out of the 60 hostages, let's say 50 living Americans were freed by American Delta Force guys. And uh, on, uh, the, the, on April 26th, we, the sun came up and we saw them getting off a plane, a C-141 at Encirlik Air Force Base in Turkey. Um, that would have been a bold, bold commando mission. Uh, it would have been accomplished. We would have been justifiably proud. And uh, in, in, who knows? Uh, the, the crisis would have been over. It would have been resolved by uh, America post-Vietnam with a uh, success in force of arms. And who knows? Maybe Jimmy Carter might have been reelected. Um, I don't think he would have been reelected in uh, 1979. Of course, December 79, the Russians invaded Afghanistan. Carter had already given away the Panama Canal. Uh, I think that on the night of April 24th and uh, 25th of 1980, Ronald Reagan got elected president. Of course, um, he wasn't actually president until next year. And then famously on uh, the moment that he was inaugurated as president of the United States, the Iranians released the American hostages after 444 days in captivity. Uh, so that is the, um, the bare bones truth of what happened with Operation Eagle Claw 38 years ago uh, this week. This is the Dark Secret Place. Brian Suits back tomorrow night at 8 p.m. on uh, Dark, uh, pardon me, on Super Hyper Local Sunday. KFI AM 640, more stimulating talk.